Welcome to the Middle East Law and Governance podcast. Middle East Law and Governance is a journal for scholarly analysis focusing on issues of governance and social, economic, and ideological transformation in the modern Middle East and North Africa. And this is our podcast. My name is Ezra Carmel, and today I'm very lucky to be joined by Rima Majid. Uh, Rima is an assistant professor of sociology in the Department of Sociology, Anthropology, and Media Studies at the American University of Beirut. Rima, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Ezra, for inviting me. I'm excited about this podcast. Wow. Well, it's great to have you on, and I'm really excited to speak with you, you know, both in your capacity as a sociologist as well as someone who is, who's been very active in political organization in Lebanon. Um, so on that, I mean, maybe you'd like to kick off by saying a little bit about your experience in this year of revolution and pandemic that Lebanon has just gone through. Sure. Uh, and I would add explosion. I mean, this uh, article we're discussing today ha- was initially written before the Beirut port explosion. And, and when I wrote about this concept of double eliminality and I was trying to reflect on my own experience, you know, I, we, I was still in a different uh, m- uh, mindset uh, than where I, where I am today. But anyways, thank you for giving us the opportunity to reflect uh, on, uh, you know, this very exceptional year in our lives. So, so I've been studying uh, social movements for, uh, for a long while, you know, in grad school. And then later on, I did research about uh, social movements in Lebanon and Iraq and other parts of, of the region. So it's been a topic that's always fascinated me and that, uh, you know, I've, I've been following closely. But when the uprising in Lebanon started, we were all kind of taken a bit off guard. Um, uh, I had never really imagined that things would explode at that specific moment the way they did. Mm-hmm. Uh, although we, we've always thought that the status quo is impossible to uh, just continue for a, fair, for a very long while. Uh, but explosions uh, or social explosions uh, of the form of the uprising of Lebanon are always, you know, sudden. So when it started, I found myself in this very uh, weird position where I wanted to think and reflect about what was happening, but I also was part of it and wanted to be part of it. And I remember waking up the next morning uh, on, on October 18th and thinking, oh my God, we don't have unions or like any kind of organization that can carry this you know, massive transformation that, that has just exploded. And why am I saying this? Because you know, we had previous waves of uh, mass mobilization in the recent history of Lebanon. And uh, one topic or one aspect of those mobilizations that you know, I was uh, thinking about and that made me quite un- uncomfortable throughout the previous years was this heavy techno-political approach that uh, unfortunately we've seen again during the uprising, but I think the efforts at the beginning when we uh, started to organize was to create an alternative beyond the uh, techno-political approach of experts and to say that this moment is different and that what is needed is really a more uh, radical rethinking of the, of the structures of the system uh, rather than providing our expert knowledge as academics or other uh, mm-hmm. uh, professionals who just need to provide solutions for how to help the system survive right. uh, or, or how to uh, uh, you know, navigate those difficult uh, or turbulent times. And, you know, learning from other experiences in the region, uh, whether it's uh, Tunisia, Sudan, but also Egypt and Syria and other cases, but also learning from uprisings and revolutions uh, around the world and, and historically as well. You know, the presence of 
grassroots organizations that can translate the uprising in our everyday life at the level of our neighborhoods, at the level of our workplaces. Because really, I mean, the system is not just a few ministers or presidents, but it's it's a whole a structure of society that, of course, can start with those main figures that uh, people were asking to oust and goes all the way down to how our everyday life is organized. So we started thinking about uh, organizing an independent association for university professors who are again who are you know pro uprising and against the uh, ruling uh, elites, but also who believe in the right of education. And you know the the idea was to organize ourselves as professors and as and with our students as well. And to rethink, you know, where do we position ourselves in such times and how do we create those alternative uh, realities we, uh, we, we want? And from the beginning, we, you know, we were saying and we were aware that this was going to be a very long term endeavor because we knew that it's very difficult to organize. And although we did not expect it to be that difficult, I mean, we didn't know that there was a pandemic coming and- <laughs> that was going to, you know, uh, uh, confine us at home. And of course, I mean, at that time, we knew that we were already in an economic crisis, but we did not, I don't think that we understood fully what it means to organize around labor in times of an economic crisis. So I think these are two lessons learned, at least. But uh, yeah, so we started organizing. There was a lot of, uh, you know, excitement at the beginning. Things have uh, have been difficult this past year, but I, I think uh, at least there's a discussion that is still ongoing. There are some chapters within uh, within the organization that are more active than others. But yeah, here we are. And I think this was maybe the, maybe our way to link uh, you know, and also to think about how do we how do we participate in an uprising from our own positionality without trying to speak on behalf of everyone, because you know the people is a very big category, and there was at the beginning there were big questions about who represents those crowds and who can speak on their behalf. And this was, and our aim was really not to speak on on anyone's behalf except ourselves. And therefore, the idea was to organize ourselves um, based on our uh, work position or labor position. Uh, that's really interesting. And I think some of those dynamics and experiences were certainly reflected in the paper that you published uh, in the most recent issue of Melk, which came out last month. And your paper was titled Living Revolution, Financial Collapse and Pandemic in Beirut, Notes on Temporality, Spatiality and Double Liminality. Right. And before we jump into into those reflections in the article, I wonder if you could maybe provide some some background on the concept of liminality, you know, for those of us who are a bit less familiar with it. Sure. So, I mean, this is a concept that comes mainly from the field of anthropology, and it's mainly a concept that is used to describe rites of passage, such as childbirth, uh, marriage, uh, funerals, puberty. Uh, So these are experiences of in-betweenness, a state of uh, limbo, uh, where one is moving from one state of being to another, or from one stage in your life to another. This has made its way to the literature on or to the reflection on, on revolutions and social movements more recently with uh, many very interesting uh, studies by, again, mainly anthropologists who have reflected on uh, uh, revolutions uh, like the, the Egyptian revolution, for example, and thinking about the experience of being in the squares and being out there as an experience of 
transition, a time out of time, as Debai says. So it's it's this ex- experience of being in between two different states or stages. Uh, and when I was reflecting on my own experience, I felt that you know it was very much lived, at least for me. And uh, I mean, this article is an uh, is an auto ethnography, so I, and it's the first time I write this genre. So, uh, but I felt the need to to reflect on my own experience. Uh, because it did feel like a time out of time. It did feel like an experience of this liminality, this in-betweenness, where there was a very uh, abrupt rupture with life as it was before October. And But, but there was also uh, a kind of uncertainty about what life would become after that moment. Yeah, mm-hmm. But in that initial uh, period, despite the rupture with the past and the uncertainty about the future, I felt that it was very much about the present moment. And and you know, in this article, I try to explain a bit, you know, how this this liminal position of the uprising was very different from the liminal experience of the pandemic uh, later on. And how they were kind of opposites in the sense that the liminality or this experience of in-betweenness and limbo in the in the uprising was was more of a hopeful one, although not a naive one. So we knew that it was difficult and we knew that, you know, we, uh, it's not like we were completely blinded, uh, but we were very hopeful. And uh, there was there was a power somehow in, in this in that experience that made people feel, or or at least made me feel that uh, uh, you know there's something to hold on to. There there are there's a power that I want to live now, whereas the experience of the pandemic, which was just a few months later, it was a more anxious one. It was one of uh, you know ruminating about the past and, and anxious about the future, but also one that came with a lot of exhaustion and you know no real power to hold on to other than uh, lamenting our our situation and, and what has uh, become of us. I mean, the pandemic was I think lamented globally um, for sure, but I think in the experience of Lebanon there was something more intense about it because it came right after a very intense moment of. Uh, uprising and, and revolution so so we went from one extreme kind of to the other yeah interesting so so the pandemic was experienced as a sort of new liminality on top of that existing protest liminality and thus the sort of double liminality that you're speaking about and i wonder in focusing in first on that more hopeful liminality um you mentioned in the article and you just discussed this sort of feeling mm. of in-betweenness or limbo um, and you know that it's a departure from the past. Is a large part of that departure a break from the sectarian system? Is that what gave it the, the, the protests, the communitas, and the comradeship that you mentioned in the article? Um, Is that what made the experience of liminality so powerful? Uh, yeah, I mean, p- partly, yes. But I, I think the, uh, the normality uh, c- cannot just be reduced to the sectarian reality. But I think it goes even beyond that. And I'm not trying to over-romanticize that moment in the sense that, yeah, there was a sense of communitas in the square. Uh, people were, and of course, I'm talking about the experience of, uh, I mean, from my own ethnography in Beirut, but of course, it does not mean that sectarianism has disappeared or that social classes have disappeared or that, uh, you know, inequality has disappeared. But it just made the, those distances a bit, uh, just brought 
brought people a bit closer together. And it created, I mean, I think the power of this moment and the liminality, and I mean, how I would describe it is that these were moments where there was a real possibility for something different, right? And this possibility was experienced and lived in many cases, even if it was ephemeral somehow, and uh, some people went back to what it was before, but it, uh, but it created those spaces and the embodiment of this poss- possibility is in the way people um, carried themselves out in those squares, uh, uh, the relationships or the, uh, uh, again, even if they were not uh, lasting relationships, but th- just the, the interactions that, uh, that uh, you know, emerged uh, between people who would have an never met or spoken to each other in other contexts, did indicate that there was something different. I mean, the break that I talk about or this rupture is there was a clear rupture with our routines. I mean, we we woke up on October uh, Thursday, October 17th and went to work and like moved on with our day uh, as a normal everyday routine. And on October 18th, everything had changed. We no longer uh, had the same uh, schedules, right? Our routines were were completely changed, and our new routine was to go to the square every day. So this in itself had had changed uh, a lot. Uh, I think the uh, you know the mobilizations uh, around uh, also the strikes that were uh, announced at the beginning. So these were all clear uh, breaks with the past. And again, I mean, as I described in, in the in the article, there was something new in the way. And by new, I mean, I don't mean that it never happened before, but I mean, this was a, a moment where people came together in, dif- in different and, and sometimes novel ways. And that was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And moving from one side to the other, from a break with the past to a, to a suspension of the future, um, you mentioned that attention was focused on the here and now. And there was not very much worry about the future. Mm-hmm. And I wonder in that moment of revolution, mm-hmm. was there still, though, a, a sense of tension with the need to organize and make decisions about the future? And maybe also, you know, a certain fear of the, the devil you don't know rather than the, the sectarianized neoliberal mm-hmm. devil you do. Uh, yeah, of course there were tensions. But uh, but when I talk about the structure, I mean, there were tensions. There were, I mean, organizing is a, is a, diff- is a very difficult thing. Uh, and I think anyone who's ever tried to organize knows what it, what it takes and what it means. I mean, people have different opinions. People see things in different ways. Uh, organizing, you know, specifically university professors is a very difficult task. I mean, this is a very uh, special group of people who, uh, who hold on very strongly to their opinions, right? And also, I think, I mean, since we're talking about it, this is also a very special group of, uh, in my opinion, workers, right? And, and the whole point of organizing was to say that, yes, we are professors, but we are also in relationships of labor, and we, we need to look at ourselves uh, as such. And it was difficult to make this break between professors as the experts uh, who want to enlighten the others and professors as a part of society and people who are also trapped in relationships of labor that are sometimes uh, very exploitative. But uh, so, yes, this, there, there were many difficulties, of course. But I think uh, at that moment, there was also more space for people to accept each other and the differences and to, to work towards decisions that are um, uh, faster to make. You know, professors have the ability to discuss for hours and hours without uh, going anywhere. But at that moment, everyone had the feeling that we need to do something, right? Or, or that it's not we need, but we also want to do something. 
But the break was, or or this, what I describe in the article about not being very worried about the future does not mean that we did not have a vision for the future. And I think we were not escaping, but maybe, at least in my case, I knew that it was going to be a messy future. And, uh, you know, and, and uh, I've written this before and I repeated it many times that this is this is going to be very long term and there will be many ups and downs and ebbs and flows. And it's a very difficult system that we're dealing with. But also this is the nature of uprisings when you don't have organizations on the ground that are able to be the, you know, to play this uh, scaffolding uh, role in, in uh, revolutions. But yeah, we but it was not a coup. Right. So it's not like we needed like a, a clearly uh, designed uh, roadmap to follow. We just, you know, we were just trying to do what we can do, knowing that. And again, we did. We never said that uh, this this kind of organizing was going to uh, to change the world. But we were just acknowledging that in order for a revolution to keep going, we need to create those organizations that can push forward for the change that we want. And, and it's in that sense that, you know, the future and the past were much lighter in that moment. Uh, we were also not very scared about the punishment. And uh, partly this is what I mean with not being very worried about the future. So, you know, we dare do things and write things and scream curses that in other times we would not have done. And to me, this is, this is kind of saying that we're not worried about the future. We're not worried about the future punishment, if you want. And this is exactly what liminal moments are about, right? right. It's like it opens these possibilities where you do things or you say things that you wouldn't do or say in other times. Right. And, and then there was this extreme shift from organizing and mobilizing to the second lim uh, liminality of the pandemic that must have been a fairly jarring experience. Mm. Um, but even though COVID was another rupture with the status quo, um, did it also kind of reconnect you with some kind of normality? I mean, you mentioned that some of the power of the first stage um, during the mobilization was losing your voice among the collective voice. And as you re regained your voice, your individuality in the lockdown, um, and you were not sort of as personally obscured as you were in the collective moment, mm -hmm. did that give you some sort of sense of normality back? I would say no. Uh, and precisely because, I mean, I think by normality, what, what we mean here is not the normal, but uh, the norm of pre um, or what our lives used to be like before sure. uh, the uprising. And uh, no, because, I mean, for many reasons, one is that what, I mean, the confinement with, with the pandemic was not, anything uh, familiar or similar to what we knew before it's true that we were pushed back into but we were pushed into a level of individual individuality that did not even exist before right it's, right. it's another extreme of uh, you know not being completely isolated and i i thought uh, you know about this moment in opposition to the initial moments of the uprising where we were where we were calling people to be in the streets and you know this feeling that it's an that power is in, in, in the collective, power is in us being together. And then all of a sudden, uh, thinking that, you know, uh, protecting each other is about uh, staying alone and this kind of disconnecting uh, physically, but at some point, it even it also became socially from others. So it, it, didn't, it took us to a new 
a new, no, I don't know if we should call it normality, but a new uh, uh, way of, of being that is, uh, that is your, your existence is, uh, is mediated by a screen right. and a stable internet connection, um, which is not, uh, which is really not what, what it was before. Sure. Mm. So, so yeah, I would say no, but it created those new moments and, and, you know, thinking again about how it relates to, to the moment of the uprising, you know, at the beginning, everyone was feeling so tired and exhausted after months of being in the streets and, and, you know, things in and out. And some people felt that maybe it's a good break. Maybe this is, this is a good time for us to organize differently. Uh, but I think very quickly, at least in, in my case, the exhaustion of the previous month, but also the, the, the mental exhaustion of, of uh, the, you know, the pandemic and the, the, the lockdown and the confinement and what it means for, uh, for our societies and what it means for us uh, as professors and uh, uh, like jumping to online teaching and et cetera also what it means to our students. So, you know, these were all questions that kind of overshadowed because it became about the immediate everyday. You know, I, some of the main uh, anxieties we had were about, because this was also the, when the, the Lebanese currency uh, devaluated drastically. So it was around the same time that we woke up and found ourselves, uh, you know, with uh, less than a, a tenth of our salary, an eight, you know. We had lost around 80% of our purchasing power. So, yeah, these were all questions that were, um, uh, you know, that were going through our, uh, sure. through my mind at, at that time. Right. And and as the world experienced, you know, this shift in the way we live and work and, and this move behind screens, um, it seems that many people globally have had a difficulty with the idea that fulfilling civic duties in this time just means staying at home rather than being mm. out helping the community. And that doesn't really fit with historical experiences of active citizenship, especially during conflict. Mm. Um, and it seems this tension was maybe especially strong in Lebanon in the midst of a crucial moment of mobilization. I mean, did you feel a civic duty to be in the streets that was conflicting with one that was mm. pushing you to be at home? Um, yes. Some, well, somehow, yes. But but also at the beginning, there was a fear of what it means to be in the streets, right? And you don't... You, did not want to put ourselves or others in danger. But, uh, uh, you know, in a previous uh, piece, uh, I have made the analogy between ways of mobilizing uh, during the pandemic and mobilization under dictatorships. Because, you know, uh, the symbolism took over. I mean, all of these waves of clapping on your balcony and like, uh, you know, having drinks with your neighbors each from their from their uh, window. So, I mean, these types of collective action we have seen in many cases and uh, mainly in, in dictatorships where contention becomes more symbolic than, um, than you know, the power of mobil- mobilizing in the streets and big numbers. So I think there is, an, uh, you know, a, a parallel to be drawn between uh, the pandemic and dictatorship. And, and you know, this one can continue with this idea and thinking about how the state has uh, reacted in uh, suppressing uh, mobilization. But also the first thing they did the first week of the uh, uh, lockdown, uh, they removed all the tents from the public squares, uh, putting an end to the existence of uh, the uprising uh, physically. Oh, right. So, so it felt like living under dictatorship, and it uh, this also happened at a time where you know the 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 police state in Lebanon was really deepening, 
and uh, you know there were many arrests uh, as i said removing and you know the state had become more brutal in in its uh, approach so yeah this is this is how it was lived but also there was i mean a, a frustration and again i mean this feeling of i wish we were better organized and we had uh, because and you know in in like negotiating our rights as uh, you know whether I mean, nurses, essential workers, or what has been this category that uh, that became known as the essential workers, uh, suddenly society woke up and, and realized that actually our essential workers are the least paid right. and those who are in the worst working conditions. And it's mainly women in most, uh, you know, in many cases. And there's no social protection in, an, in a society where, you know, with the financial collapse, I mean, uh, everything is becoming uh, uh, so difficult. And this is where where you felt that you know I wish we we had these organizations or the power to defend ourselves without the need to mobilize in the streets. Uh, yeah. So this was again a very recurrent feeling um, in my case. Uh, you know, from d- discussing things like in our association, like online online teaching. What what does it mean in a country where there's no electricity, where many students have no access to laptops or internet, right? And uh, how many of the institutions are completely oblivious and, uh, you know, we're just told uh, jump online. I mean, whether, uh, and, and I'm talking about uh, about the, the higher education system in Lebanon at large, not just my institution, but, uh, um, you know, the real problems that are structural in that you would think that you need a union in, in such cases to, um, to discuss and negotiate those things. Uh, and unfortunately, we were not prepared. And, and the more uh, things became difficult, the more difficult it was to organize and the more scared people got uh, because people were afraid to lose their jobs. People did not want to mobilize uh, or antagonize the employers, uh, etc. So it, it is a very difficult time. And it did feel like, uh, as I said, living in um, dictatorial regimes. Right. And of course, this difficult time only became more difficult uh, with the port explosion that you mentioned earlier. Mm. Um, And you also said earlier that the pandemic did not sort of return a sense of normality. Um, But what about the port explosion? How did that affect this experience of liminality? The port explosion was was actually the moment I I felt that I woke up. From, uh, from those uh, two very liminal experiences. It was like a, a slap on the face mm-hmm. and kind of, you know, in those moments of in-betweenness and like when we started to think about what is awaiting us and, and what what is the future uh, uh, hiding, uh, the explosion was kind of a very uh, ugly uh, kind of realization of this is what the future is is or this is this is what uh you know this is what it it has um boiled down to i uh, i say this not to say i mean in my opinion the uprising is still ongoing in different shapes and and from the beginning i i was thinking about it as a long-term process rather than an event it's not a concert it's an uprising (laughs) so it's uh, it's something that is going to unfold over uh, many years or decades i think but it was a kind of the explosion was a wake up call that, OK, we have entered this period where things where the forces of the counter revolution have uh, become stronger somehow and where uh, things have taken a completely new direction, but also a, a dimension that is more uh, regional and international 
and uh, that is uh, that is very difficult. And with no uh, with no solution in sight for the uh, financial crisis, unfortunately, I I I lost the optimism of the beginning, um, and I think the the pessimism of the in- intellect be- also became um, you know the, the pessimism of uh, you know of the present moment. But I'd like to think that I can still hold on to the optimism of the will, at least. I hope. And and before we come to an end, uh, I wanted to ask, um, you mentioned in the article that the ongoing threat of war in Lebanon creates a, a kind of in-the-meantime feeling. Mm. And I guess we're seeing this now, you know, especially with Israeli jets overhead in recent days. And I was wondering if we can say that Lebanon is almost always in a kind of liminality state, um, would that be sort of conceptual stretching, or does that kind of make sense? No, it is, and uh, uh, yes, of, of course. But I think, uh, I mean, it's it's this anticipation of something horrible happening, right? It's kind of the outcome. We're not sure what the outcome is, but we kind of know that it's going to be bad. Whereas the outcome with the uprising, uh, you know, we knew it was going to be difficult, but it was more hopeful. So yeah, I mean, one can apply this concept of liminality to the experiences today of, you know, of most, most, most of us living here are constantly and on a daily basis, uh, you know, anticipating war, anticipating uh, tension, you never know what happens. As, as you're saying, Israeli jets are flying over our heads on a daily basis. Uh, but also, we don't know what the exchange rate is, and we don't know how much money we're making with, uh, you know, with our salaries uh, uh, dwindling. So this is all, of course, a, a very liminal, uh, um, uh, or at least one can think about it through the concept of liminality. But to me, I felt that, you know, the explosion was a clear um it's like announcing this new phase or that we've entered this phase where things look very grim unfortunately and therefore what we're expecting is um is not very hopeful well that's a a somber note to leave things on but probably (laughs) probably a good one for today um so rima thank you so much for joining me it's really been very interesting to speak with you Thank you, Ezra. Uh, I, I really enjoyed this. And thank you for uh, for doing those podcasts. Uh, I enjoy listening to them. Oh, well, thank you. And thank you again for being here. And thank you uh, to everyone who listened in. We'll be back soon with another episode of the Middle East Law and Governance Podcast. 